Warning, the following podcast may contain material that is inappropriate for listeners that are under the age of 18, are easily offended, or get annoyed listening to the rantings of holier-than-thou-know-it-alls that are anything but. Hey everyone, and welcome back. This is episode 118 of the Anime World Order podcast. Conventions are over, at least until uh, Anime Weekend Atlanta, so we have got a little bit of time to breathe and some more time to work on podcasts. As usual, I am Gerald Rathgold, and with me, my good friends... This is Daryl Surratt. And this is Clarissa. And we have got, this time, holy crap, we have got a proper episode for you guys. We even have a review. Proper review. No no interviews this time. Impossible. Unpossible, I know. Yes. A few basic things out of the way. Um, check out the website, www.animeworldorder.com. Email us. We'd like to read your emails at animeworldorder at gmail.com. And uh, you'll find us on Twitter. You'll find all the links at animeworldorder.com. So, we always tend to forget to mention what we're actually going to review, so I'm going to get that out of the way right now. For this episode, I'm going to review one of the weirdest animes I've ever seen in my life. One that I've known about for years, but got quite a lot of attention at your craziest deaths panel at Otakon, Daryl. Which is, we will uh, also, I guess, be uh, recapping what went yes. down at Otakon to sort of lead into that review, since uh, I guess, exactly. in, in a sense, you could say that they're all interconnected. I'll be taking a look at uh, Dori Chojo Tsubaki, or as it's also known, Mr. Arashi's Freak Show. Might as well make a dent in some of these emails. And we've got uh, a short email here from uh, Johanna Smith. It's just titled Dirty Pear. It says, Dear Gerald, I recently started watching Dirty Pear, and it occurred to me that they were called the Lovely Angels. This made me wonder if there was any link between the show and Charlie's Angels, especially when the Dirty Pear were referred to as Angels. I also couldn't help but notice that they were both kick-ass women beating ass and taking names, awesome agents and guns, so, after all, this is the obvious James Bond connection with Project Eden. I couldn't think of anyone else to ask, and so I figured you would know better than anyone else would. So, I actually don't know if there is that connection between Charlie's Angels and the Lovely Angels. Uh, Daryl? I guess just to give some context, we did review Project Eden back in show yeah. number 49, and then we did a review of, I guess, the TV show back in show 98 when that came out, and I did touch upon the details of the origins of these names back then. I mean, it's no real secret. I think um, it, it's pretty much commonly known that the name Dirty Pair came from uh, the, both, both the name Dirty Pair and Lovely Angels came from references to women's professional wrestling in the 1970s, uh, Japanese women's wrestling. There was uh, the Beauty Pair, which was Jackie Sato and Maki Ueda, which was an incredibly famous team. And there was also um, the Queen Angels, which is uh, Lucy Kayama and uh, Tomi Aoyama. They were, you know, two famous teams that were just, um, you know, very popular among teenage girls at the time. And they sort of transcended uh, being wrestlers and were also, you know, idol singers and, you know, TV personalities and what have you. And so the creator of the sh series, uh, whose name I always forget, Dirty Pairs creator, it's 
Haruka Takachio. Yeah, okay. I I knew that's the last name because I've always repeatedly forgotten it. They made the joke that when they went and saw the show, you know, one of their friends said, those ladies are, you know, the the beauty pair. But, you know, when you look at these guys, us in the audience, by comparison, we're the the dirty pair. Right. So uh, the Lovely Angels from the Queen Angels is, you know, a similar sort of thing. There was another Angels-related team a few years later called the Jumping Bomb Angels. That was uh, Itsuki Yamazaki and Norio Tateno. They were actually in the WWF in America in uh, hmm. in the 1980s. You know, you can see them in like the early Survivor series and, and such. But yeah, I, I'm pretty sure I covered all that. I guess the reasons I can kind of list that offhand is that for the last six months or so, I've been once a week streaming professional wrestling matches for about two hours, and I kind of pull things from all over the world and women's wrestling from Japan in the eighties and nineties is a significant chunk of that. That's, that's pretty much the only story of it that I know. Uh, I don't know if Charlie's angels had factored into it. I mean, that was probably bigger here than it was in Japan, but I'm sure it was famous everywhere. Yeah, I, I assume that if it was a Charlie's Angels reference, that it's the wrestlers were named, we got it from that, and not uh, the Dirty Pair, if there's any connection at all. We have another email here from, just says, question for the show, very generic title, I suppose, from Matthew, and he just says, Hi guys, really enjoyed your show when you were recording, and I hope you get around to recording more episodes. I really enjoy your insight that you have in the anime industry, and it really sets your podcasts apart from other podcasters. Thank you. Anyway, my question... I started to fall off of anime because of the trend in anime in which half of the show is the main character explaining what is going on in the show through internal monologue. It's really nitpicky, but it really bothers me when writers use this technique to write a show because it's lazy and it bogs down the pacing of an episode, and no one seems to be complaining about it except Zach Birchie. Any recommendations on anime with well-written dialogue? I guess well-written is, you know, again, there's a subjectiveness to that, and I think just to give in context of why that continues to happen is because most of anime is adapted from manga. And so when people have that sort of info dump expository dialogue in thought bubbles in manga, you can kind of read it, you know, very, very quickly, you know, the speed at which you think almost, you know, you can read it that fast and it doesn't seem to bog things down. But once you have to vocalize those words, then it can take a much longer time. Plus the fact that it's not a moving picture, it helps to have somebody explaining that this is what's happening when you're reading something because you can't actually see it in movement. And I do kind of think once they switch over to animation, maybe you don't need that quite as much, but I guess they're not thinking along those lines. So I think maybe the the best way to answer his question, it's almost, I'm not going to say well-written, but probably things that aren't adapted from manga, right? I mean, the the, the things that, uh, in my opinion, are the worst are usually the things that are adapted from visual novels. Visual novels or light novels, yeah. Those are the ones where it's just constant talking about things that you should be seeing. Well, I tried to watch Fate Stay Night, and that was just horrific to get through because it was just tons and tons of just talking and talking. But Clarissa, you watched Fate Zero, and it wasn't as bad, right? No, Fitz Hero's great. Okay, so it's not just... So maybe it's just a question of who is doing the adaptation, because in all the common traits in that is that it's adapted from some pre-existing media, that whether it's prose, whether it's text with some pictures in it, you know, we'll call them light novels, like young adult sort of things, whether it's a video game, whether it's a comic book, that's where you'll tend to see this... 
he's ripping his chest, you know, the sign that he has respect for Bao, you know. Or you know, you are my brother. As you know, <laughs> As you we know, are, you are related. My the best type of dialogue, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, shows with that mm. stand out, like, for as good dialogue. I mean, I always really liked Pat Labor. Pat Labor, in my opinion, didn't really get bogged down too badly in that. And the character interaction was really good. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really tricky to talk about dialogue with any kind of, like, source material that's in a different language. Just because, on the one hand, sort of cultural, like, speech patterns and ideas of what constitutes, like, natural speech or different ideas um and then also you have the translation issue translation so i don't know like it's weird to you know because it's difficult to judge the original dialogue i think just because of the language barrier like unless you're fluent in both but then if you're talking about a translation of course there's some argument always as to how much of the dialogue is due to the translation and how much is due to the original so to contextualize what I was just saying, because I was repeating back words Clarissa was saying in the Japanese, that's part of acknowledging that you're listening to somebody. Mm. Once but you translate it exactly <laughs> like that, it just sounds like Solid Snake's an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There are times when oftentimes when people are clearly saying stuff that I should be watching. Mm, and right. I don't know. Sometimes I feel like that is due to, you know, trying to info dump this stuff and sometimes it feels like they're doing it due to cost cutting uh right because you just say it you don't have to draw it yeah it's easier to show some guy's lip flapping than it is to show like a city exploding or him talking about like his family being killed in front of him or something right to go back to your palibur example i mean that is sort of another one where the anime and the manga were sort of developed concurrently with each other they're not really directly following each other beat for beat it's not right. like you read a chapter of Pat Labor and then you watch an episode of the show and it matches up to that. And so that's, in a sense, an example of something that is not adapting some other work. And so cases like that where you see anime that is just an original idea made first for that, a lot of times it's not going to have this. I'm not going to say every time. Because there's a lot of Gundam mm. that's developed as anime first, and I'm sure yeah. Gundam dialogue <laughs> is not really the high uh, watermark. Right. Oh my god. In fact, that might be the worst <laughs> when I think of it, like, in terms of dialogue. Not so much Gundam, just Tomino, mm, I think. Yeah. Because that's how he thinks. But, yeah. like, yeah, Palibur is an example of that. I mean, part of the reason why people, like, revere things like... Cowboy Bebop so much is that it was not adapted from something else. It was made for animation first. And so the dialogue in that is often remembered as being particularly naturalistic. I don't remember if Escaflone was victim to the same thing. Uh, Macross Plus, you know, I'm just rifling off things that Shoji Kawamori and maybe Yoko Kano and Shinichiro Watanabe had some involvement in, but. Yeah, those were all made for anime. I mean, there were manga adaptations, but, but they that came was afterwards again, in the anime. They came wasn't. afterwards or they were concurrent or they were d- to advertise the anime. Right. Specifically. And Macross is another famous example of like one of these sorts of things that is anime's property first and foremost. Yeah. Uh, Yamato also, it's not like there's a based off of the Yamato manga. Certainly there's Space Battleship Yamato comics, but again, it's uh, the same sort of idea. Like they made yeah. the thing for the visual medium first. And what you're noticing is, in my opinion, when they're making a visual adaptation of something that was not entirely meant for that 
when they was first conceived and as part of adapting it, they didn't really bother to make that significant a change because they figured, oh, the existing fan base expects this to be there. Plus well, what Gerald said with the monetary things like, hey, maybe it only takes half a second for Luffy to punch somebody and then, you know, fly through the air. We have 23 minutes to fill this week. Well, we better have somebody say, oh, this is exactly what he just did. It's basically lazy writing. That's if you have the time and are a talented writer, you can write around that, and make it interesting. But if you have to produce an episode every week, then it can be difficult. I mean, I remember watching and I like the show. I remember watching Legend of the Galactic Heroes. And that is such a dialogue heavy show. Mm. And I remember my eyes rolling back and thinking, like, shouldn't we be watching this? What they're talking about? A lot of times they would just abstract what we were seeing by way of the readouts on their monitors. You know, Mm -hmm. they can't easily draw the several thousand fleets of ships moving into formation in a few seconds the way that a heads-up display can sort of show it rendered as like a triangle blipping in and out into position. So, yeah, I I don't know if we have like examples, like some concrete things that don't do that. Pat Labor is a great example. Most of the things I can think of are films, are things that are sort of like short OAV series that typically aren't like as bound to that, you know? Things I'm thinking of are, again, they're not like dialogue heavy stuff. Like, you know, I didn't mind the dialogue in Redline, but again, Redline, there wasn't a lot of dialogue in it. It wasn't really a character interaction piece. It was an action piece. And it was originally made as a film. I don't know. Captain Tyler stands out to me as like a good work that didn't get bogged down in a lot of explainy dialogue <laughs> sometimes though i i have to confess sometimes explainy dialogue is the meat of the show like i don't think detroit metal city would be where it was were it not for explainy dialogue <laughs> or maybe like not okay. quite understanding dialogue but explainy <laughs> dialogue all the same yes well detroit metal city was also special in that it was partially adapted to look like the manga, like they would even have panels appear on screen and such. Yeah, very much That's... like how the JoJo's Bizarre Adventure TV series anime is basically just trying to be the manga in motion, like almost a right. motion comic. Mm-hmm. That's how DMC was adapted in a similar fashion, and so maybe people are more forgiving of it appearing there than in other things. It does really strike close to home, like what uh, medium it comes from when there's an action scene and a guy like jumps into the air and then has to explain like before he lands that he's going to do this action and this action and this action. When it's supposed to be like something happening very quickly, like I'm right about to hit you. Maybe if you read the panel out, it sounds like, yeah, that could conceivably happen in the time it took for me to read it versus the time for them to perform the action. But once it's like, you're open now, now I'm going to hit you with the so-and-so technique because you are open and I'm coming from this particular angle, which you can no longer dodge, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, comics allow, like, a really weird sort of manipulation of time that doesn't work as well when you're actually converting it into something that happens in real time. Yeah, I mean, it can come across as an instantaneous thought Mm -hmm. rather than a line read by somebody. So, anyway, thanks for the question, Matthew. So I guess if he was looking for a list, we gave him a couple of examples there, but... Mm -hmm. By and large, I would just look into things that weren't adaptations of something else. Giant Robo. Giant Robo had some good back and forth. I remember that, too. Again, that was adapted, but not like... That wasn't a direct adaptation, was it? No. No, they just took the characters and such from a bunch of Wrote their own story. Yeah. So, anyway, on with the rest of the show. A few weeks ago, Daryl and I went to Otakon. 
This was the 20, 20th year 20th because they didn't year. want to say 20th anniversary because that would be the 21st no. year. Right. 20th year of Otakon. Over 34,100 people attending this time. I Which think is that's... to say, when you think back a couple of years ago, they'd instituted a cap yeah. because up we can't really hold this many people in the area. And they capped it at like 10,000 fewer. And yeah. I think part of why they were able to justify not having the cap anymore is that they now had that adjo- adjoining hotel uh, with its function area and such. But but they are now running into problems with that, which we will get to very soon. Yeah. This Otakon, much like the other Otakons, went off uh, very well and very professionally. They had Yoko Kano in attendance this year. They wanted to, you know, get some really good guests for their 20th year. I kind of think this will go down as like, if they had had just Yoko Kano, I think people would have been like, yeah, we're good. But then, you know, the fact that they had so many other guests, I think this year will probably be remembered as like one of the high watermarks, I feel, as far as who they actually got at this thing. Some of the guests, you know, were people that... I necessarily wasn't interested in. Like, they had a good portion of the, the crew that worked on Oremo. Oremo and Sword Art Online. Those right. are, like, two big shows that I don't follow myself, but they are. I can't deny that they're massively right. popular. And Oremo actually had some uh, extra draw to it as well, because they actually premiered that second um, portion of it before it came out in Japan. Besides that, they even had very well-known uh, anime voice actors, like, Tomokazu Seki, who... I was actually surprised that... Well, not not too surprised, but I mean, nowadays, when you think about the Toonami days, right? Mm-hmm. That was in the early 2000s, early to mid-2000s, was sort of the peak of the weekday afternoon Cartoon Network anime stuff. So such that the people who are now in their 20s, that's like their adolescence or their childhood. And so Tomokazu Seki at Otakon... People weren't like super duper remembering him for a whole lot of other things that I associated him with. They were primarily there because he was G Gundam's Domenkashu. And that was like this huge turnout. And so he was like, yes, that is my favorite role of all time, actually. And I guess he kind of read the room well. I did find it funny that he was uh, asked about Vice Croice. And then he was like, that shit sucks. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> basically what he said was oh, oh my god that was so horrible <laughs> but yeah i mean it's so fascinating because i mean that dude has been around for a while he's still mm-hmm. in stuff yeah he's been in multiple other things that are some of which are going on right now i mean he's archer in fate zero right so there's like a bunch of stuff but but people were there for gundam yeah <laughs> g gundam which used to be like the redheaded stepchild to be fair the, the people who will show up to the anime panel gundam fans are that much more obsessive about it i think as well but he also had a really prominent role in gundam seed it's just that yeah people remember this one because that's when they were kids or the, when they were teenagers but yeah he was a huge guest and he wasn't even like the only big voice actor they had there no japanese <laughs> and american i don't really follow the american voice actor side of things but i mean i can look and see like okay i can recognize who all these names are they're all frequent dub con guests but Mm -hmm. i didn't go to any other things considering that this musical guest would have been like the highlight of a normal year it's crazy to think that tm revolution was like the The second second tier tier guy that they had yeah normally he would be like a number one holy crap you got tm revolution how old is he now like 55 (laughs) i don't know but (laughs) 
the thing I remember him for is the Rurouni Kenshin. But he has been doing music, like, constantly for anime as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he did Gundam Seed and uh, Sengoku Basara. Those are the two that come to my mind. But, yeah, uh, those are all the current Those are the right. current things he did. But yeah, I mean, I would say that I probably first heard TM Revolution for that Kenshin uh, ending song, uh, yeah. Heart of Sword. And then he's just been in stuff throughout for quite some time. So he, he did his full set of all that kind of stuff. And he actually... Um, was in a duet, I guess, with the other act, uh, Homemade Kazuko, I think. Was that who Yeah, he was I, unfortunately, I could not go to his concert because we they had held a... it in the arena. And well, that's like the right place to have that stuff because Otakon can rent out the first Mariner Arena. Mm-hmm. Um, provided once Justin Timberlake clears out, because when we got there Thursday, there was the tandem, what was it, Jay Z and Justin Timberlake? concert i I don't know if that was held there but i know that we were seeing the the traffic from it it was uh pretty insane thought it might get rained out but i i don't know it rained so bad on thursday yeah like (laughs) flooding did it at least cool things off then it actually was not unforgivably hot throughout the weekend like i was expecting to be but also we had a room that didn't require us to actually go outside except for food because we actually couldn't get a room in the same hotel we were normally in so we actually paid the extra to stay in the con hotel which unfortunately the worst line situation and backup situation and it was bad this year noticeably bad well yeah was because that extra ten thousand people worst of that was the connection between the hilton and the convention center right that's always been the worst area ever since they built it and there's not really anything they can do about it no no no. there's there's some definite like issues this year i had with their crowd management because friday they said you know what let's shift the registration line also so that it goes up into that skywalk oh yeah that was ridiculous and that was completely blocked off and so in order to like like i guess i being there as panelist and press i had panels to do and i also had interviews to do and so they'd scheduled me with like the one interview I really had to do because Shinichiro Watanabe was a guest at this con and Shinichiro Watanabe is the guy who directed Cowboy Bebop and Samurai Champloo and Kids on the Slope and he's got a new show coming out in January and so I'm like okay my number one priority is to get an interview with this guy. <laughs> this, and so, this was this is why I lost like three pounds over the course of this weekend. Right, because the place where all the press interviews are held is at one hotel, which is on one side of the convention. It's the Sheraton. And then the place where the panels are being held is the Hilton, which is the complete opposite end of the con. And so they said, all right, Bandai Visual, who is the people who are in charge of having him be a guest at the con, they approve all the interviews in advance. And they said, okay, your interview is at 4 o'clock sharp. And I look at the schedule. I'm like, but I have a panel that ends at 4 o'clock. So I have to tell everybody up front that I have to rush through and end my panel early. You know, the panel suffered a bit for that. It was my 100-year overview of, you know, animated date. And so I, I had a bunch of new stuff. I had found, like, some clips of things that had only been unearthed, like, as recently as a month or so ago and was able to get some of that in. But the fact that I had to rush through it and end 15 minutes early just to make the walk hurt it a bit. I'll, I'll be first to admit that. But... I was like, okay, let me time how long it takes to walk from here to there beforehand. So I time it and I'm like, okay, in the typical con traffic, I can make this in about 10 minutes. So if I end it at this time, I'll have time to spare. 
that was the exact moment when they had decided to move registration into that skywalk and completely block it off, which meant <laughs> that we had to go outside and run across the street. And it's like 98 degrees outside in Baltimore. And so we, we make it there. Uh, thanks to Alan chase from otaku generation who is staff at this convention. He, um, works in oh. the, in the AMV room and, you know, does, uh, I guess their con historian stuff now, like taking archival video and stuff like that. So he was able to, get us into some of those back channel uh, areas that the staff are normally able to, so we can get there. And then I get there and I found out that Bandai Visual thought we weren't coming and canceled our interview. (laughs) Thankfully we did get an interview. We got an interview. We we were able to get 15 minutes, but I mean, we couldn't get extra time because 4.30 was when his autograph session was. So we couldn't like push that, but we did get to hear like the big announcement before it was made on the Saturday, which is good because I was scheduled opposite his um, big announcement panel on the next day. And we should just talk about this quick briefly. Now Uh, he's doing a new TV show, sci-fi based called space dandy that is premiering in January. And we got to see the trailer for this from the looks of it. This is exactly what he should be making and what anime needs it looks tremendously fun. It is basically like a Cowboy Bebop-like show, except Cowboy Bebop was about 80% serious and 20% comedy. And this one is now 80% comedy, 20% serious. That's his own words, you know, that yes. we're quoting there. But yeah, I mean, he got most everyone back who made Cowboy Bebop to make this show. He even got Keiko Nobumoto back, who was yep. like the writer. The writer who, who also is wrote terrific. for Satoshi Khan stuff. Yeah. And then uh, she never worked in anime ever again because I guess nobody wanted her because uh, she's she was just too or, damn good or something. Yeah, something <laughs> like that. But they did get her back for this one. And the gimmick is that each episode is going to have uh, designs by different creators, songs by different people. And so I guess it's going to be, you know, exactly the sort of thing that we think uh, we would like to see on TV. Certainly they pass that word along to, you know, the powers that be that, hey, look into getting this. But I don't know what the stance of anime on US TV is <laughs> at this point. It'll certainly be streaming uh, somewhere. Cause yeah, hopefully. That would be biggest crime of I all of us. I think that that's a streaming. given. I think that they're smart enough that they know that it has to also be streaming. Right. Uh, so anyway, I would agree there. It's- he did show at the, the Q&A thing. They also showed like some sketches and some character archetypes. But honestly, all I needed to know is I got a new show coming out. It starts in January. Okay, great. That's all I need to know. Which is insane because typically the space between his shows is like seven years. And he just did Kids on the Slope last year. Right. So that is terrific that someone picked up another show of his quickly. And we asked him about that. Why is it that you get to do one show every decade? Yeah, I'll I'll see how much of it I can actually print in my interview because most of the questions we asked him, he ended up answering at the press conference anyway. Like, I still got to ask my questions. It's more just... Well, I guess everybody now knows the content of what my interview would be as opposed to the things that I would have asked him just at the one-on-one. But eh, whatever, that's that's how it is. It was very funny when he he did say, you know, my influences come from not Hollywood movies. Uh, yeah, he actually he corrected your phrasing on one of those questions. But yes. yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> we'll get into that, I guess, when you uh, when the when the issue comes out, I guess, which yep. is not this next one coming out, but the one after that. It'll probably be. About a month or so before Space Dandy actually starts airing. And that's when that interview will hit. So that was like my big adventure as far as 
sprinting like a lunatic. Gerald had another interview that I couldn't make for uh, similar scheduling reasons. You were podcasting. What the hell are you talking That's about? That's a scheduling reason. Bullshit. You could have jumped out of that. Well, no anyway, I got, I got to interview um, Kaoru uh, Kurosaki. Originally, the uh, author of Roni Kenshin was going to be there, but couldn't make it. And so his wife, Kaoru Kurosaki, came. And she brought along with her a lot of original art from Kenshin and put it up in a gallery and let everyone take a look at it. And she uh, and I got to interview her and I will post that interview hopefully in this episode. So stick around at the end of the episode. And uh, she's an interesting lady. Now, how well were my questions, given that you haven't really watched much Roroni Kenshin, whereas I watched a lot, all of it? We uh, didn't even get that much into Roroni Kenshin. Okay, cool. It was mostly about like her and her husband's... Uh, love of comic books and <laughs> american comic books i should say but i will leave that for the interview did she actually mention because i know at her panel at her q a she said he was really sad that he couldn't uh show up to america because he wanted to hit toys r us and see what pacific rim toys they had she mentioned pacific rim but more in that movies that she has watched recently that she really really liked that both of them really really liked Good taste. Apparently, they were the only people in Japan that went to see Pacific Rim. It was a good interview. Special thanks to, you know, the Otakon Press for arranging that for us. And I guess we should mention, you know, that we were talking about the space issues that they're having, and probably the biggest news that came out of Otakon itself is that in uh, four years, Otakon is moving its location to Washington, D.C. Yeah, I guess the Baltimore area, they said that they were going to build them a whole bunch of new stuff, and I guess they still have not done so, and whatever they have to do to fucking widen this goddamn skywalk is going to take more than a year i suppose so they... i don't know if it's what it's related to exactly but i know it's something about space and just being able to you know get it done in time like i guess they conceivably couldn't hold the convention or something yeah they probably should renovate the entire convention center honestly because it's so like arcane in its layout and between that and the fact that the staff would shut off certain areas at weird times and not really make it clear why this was happening. That probably killed things the most. And Clarissa, I know that you're familiar with this as well. There's that skywalk that is always crowded mm -hmm. right where the panel rooms are. And then there's an area underneath that where you walk across the street. And you can walk across there and there's easy access to the artist alley and the dealer's room. For some reason, that was never open the entire weekend. The congestion was just constantly building up. And they know better than I do about crowd control and all that. So they must have had a good reason for it. We just could not figure out what it was. And I it was never communicated to anybody why they didn't open up these areas. Just relieve it and offer like two entrances into the dealer's room. Or at least the dealer's room area or the and the artist alley. Because that just got painful to deal with. I don't know. Maybe it's some sort of make people walk longer, so therefore they think they're getting in faster or whatever. Well, I don't know. they do. This is the only con where because they're like 35,000 people, they deliberately do things that smaller cons should never do under any circumstance. But they do it specifically because they want people to have to do one thing or another thing. So, mm -hmm. for example, they would have two things appealing to a similar interest going on at the same time on different sides of the convention. And that's exactly what they wanted because they figure, oh, okay, well, the turnout for each one is going to be comparably high. You should never, ever do this if you're a smaller convention. And there's a lot of things that Otakon does that other smaller cons should copy. But there are a lot of things they do because of their size that if you were another con besides them that you tried to copy, it would just turn out really badly. 
Right, they have to do it. But I mean, as far as, as panels go, I was on a few. A lot of the things that I ended up doing, I ended up missing things that I wanted to see. Like last year, we saw that really good Macross panel. Yeah. They brought those people back, but they put them opposite me, so I didn't get to see it. Mm-hmm. Then for when I did my short anime panel, which was in a room I'd never ever been into in all the time I'd been to Otakon, because it's like, I guess they changed the map to say like, oh, this room next to this video room is now a panel room. And yeah. I was like, oh, are people even going to know? But it totally, like, there's just so many people that if there's 35,000 people and you have a room that seats 300 or whatever, they're still going to turn people away. And so that's that's precisely what happened. And basically the idea of my panel was just to show things that were Less than 15 minutes long, things like Inferno Cop, things like Azumanga Daio, things like uh, Robot Carnival, and you know things with shorts like anthologies. I, I showed a bunch of that, and I was surprised nobody at the con had heard of On Your Mark, which is this uh, music video that I thought was incredibly famous because it's like Studio Ghibli's music video. Right. Uh, but nobody would seen it, and I just sort of illustrates the point that if something isn't licensed or released in the U.S., even if something is on YouTube easily and freely, that doesn't really amount to anything because people aren't going to know about it. So, I mean, when we talk about the importance of there not being anime on television, whenever someone says, yeah, but things are on Netflix or things are on DVR, so is the world. You know, the, the fact that something is on TV gives you a focusing point to say, okay, here's this, this exists, and here's where you can get it. Whereas you know, everything else is just like this amorphous crapshoot. And so that sort of illustrated it better than anything. I think with things like On Your Mark, like I would see that, and maybe it's the same situation with you, that would either come on like the end of a video, like a fan sub video, or it would be just shown at an anime club to fill time. Right. And those two means that we saw it by don't exist anymore. Correct. I mean, that was part of the whole thing that got AMVs distributed and a lot of the birthings of anime hell type things was that, well, the tape holds 120 minutes, but you can't fit five episodes on there. You can fit four episodes and then you have X amount of time. It's just whatever. So just put anything on there to fill those last couple minutes. And on your mark would typically be something... Because it's like, oh, seven minutes or whatever. Right. Um, so anyway, that panel went over really well. I was on a panel Friday morning, which I didn't know what the panel was really going to be. It was Charles Dunbar's panel. He's another like featured panelist. Like, he's an anthropologist, actually. And so he does anime con panels from the position of an anthropologist. He has studyofanime.com is his website. And so he's huge all over the Northeast. Like if you just put his name on things, a lot of people will show up because he, he's crazy and weird. And so he was doing a panel all about fandom convergence and uh, the modern otaku. If you're wondering, he's the source of all these obnoxious anime Boston panel names like the something sentence colon other sentence. Maybe it works for him because he's a fucking PhD who writes like theses and things like that. But when other people try to copy him, especially Dr. Strangelove guy who thinks that he can do every video game panel and not really <laughs> understand how doctors, you know, I, I mentioned that and then he sent me a direct message on the Otakon boards. He's like, it's a reference to Dr. Strangelove. It's like, I know that it's a reference to Dr. Strangelove, but you should maybe apply that. So it actually means something. And I don't know. Anyway. So Charles's theory is basically taking the convergence theory, which originally wasn't 
applicable to this. It was sort of the idea of transmedia as uh, sort of the wave of the future. But then it turned out the transmedia idea was bullshit. Nobody really wanted to not just read the comics or, you know, not just watch the movie, but also read the comics and the TV show and play the game, et cetera, to get the full story. This was like a big emerging thing in the early 2000s with the Star Wars prequels and the Matrix and all that stuff. If you look at 2013 now and ask a nerd what their opinion is of the Star Wars prequels or the Matrix, it's not going to be very positive. And so this idea, as it was originally conceived, sort of fell apart. Charles said, let me take this and apply it to conventions and how the fact that anime cons now have more than just anime in them. And is this indicative of just a changing nature of fandom everywhere to be the sort of all-encompassing thing? And so I was sort of on there to be kind of like the counterpoint to that, along with Doug Wilder. He's like from AnimeCons.com. So I, I basically figured like the gist of my argument was that's true and that's happening in anime, but I don't think it's representative of a full movement because it's not a two-way street. It's not like when you go to the My Little Pony or the Doctor Who conventions that they allow anime in there as readily as anime allows other things. And so that was basically the idea of it. It was a good panel uh, considering that I had little to no preparation whatsoever as far as what would actually be discussed in it. But I think it turned out well. So those were uh, two of my panels. And then, of course, I had uh, Craziest Deaths for uh, anime. It was 100% new clips again. I don't think I'll ever be able to do that. But I said that last year. They put me in a smaller room than they had me in last year, which I guess it's just because of you know, the other super popular things that they had coming back for the 20th year that had to go in those ultra massive rooms. Like the only time I ever went in there was for Mike Tool's panel for the worst anime of all time. Cause last year they put him in a room in the Hilton, which is kind of like the regular bigger panel rooms. And they were like, Oh, this was a mistake because way too many people show up to it. So they put him in like the massive room and he totally filled that thing or well, he mostly filled that thing. It's just, I think there was a miscommunication among the people letting people in saying, Oh, it's full. But I was looking and saying, no, there are clearly seats. So he showed like a whole bunch of crazy things that people didn't know about, which is always good because that's what like Mike starship does. troopers, I guess. Well, yeah, I guess people like, don't know about that. It's always fascinating. Cause like when I was looking at the list of things he was rolling out, I was like, I'm really glad that he's picking all of these. Cause almost all of them happen to be like, anime's craziest deaths like former shows or you know what have you he did however one-up me because like i'd shown dark warrior in the past but he found the dub of dark warrior because that's what he does is find the dub of things dog soldier another one he'd found the dub of that which i knew existed but i just didn't have a copy of it because he ran out of time i played that final dog soldier clip at anime's craziest deaths and i guess nobody had seen it like i just figured like the end of dog soldier was one of those things that was like beaten into the ground but maybe it's just beaten into the ground at awa it's beaten into the ground at panels like that and remember most people that go to anime conventions don't go to panels at all well don't go to panels but also most people that go to anime conventions that's their first convention yeah, because I actually rate, like said, okay, who's never been to this panel before? And almost everybody raised their hand. And I'm like, fuck, I did all this work for nothing. I could have just reshowed the exact same things and gotten away with it. Yeah, but, it makes me wonder if I can do some of my older panels and reshow some of that stuff. Because I've never repeated anything I've done in the hentai panels. And, and yeah, I mean, I kind of wonder about that because I don't want to be the person who does the same panel over and over. But I also, as it gets harder and harder to find things, it's like picking apples. 
first you're only like getting the best and like the shiniest, but after a while you're just taking anything that sort of passes muster and throwing it into the basket. And I, I was sort of wondering like, huh, am I running out of violence to show? And I figured, well, the goal of these panels is to show people shit that they haven't really seen before. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the enemy's craziest death stuff in the past was like old eighties OAVs, nineties OAVs, stuff that is generally forgotten about. And this year I was figuring, well, there's actually been a lot of insanity released just within the past year. Some of which is very popular. Like I started with psychopaths and everyone's watching psychopaths. Everyone said, Oh, you got to do attack on Titan. So I, didn't show attack on titan proper i showed like you know a goofy parody of it but everyone everyone understood the gag there but there were two that like i was like huh these are things that i have seen and were recommending to people that came out very recently well one of them came out very recently anyway that nobody knows about because there was a a movie and i'm gonna review this probably next episode so i'm not gonna go too much into it here but keichi sato the guy who directed tiger and bunny made a movie Last year, in 2012. It's a cool movie. It's an adaptation of an old 70s manga, uh, and no one's talking about it. And I was like, oh, well, that's kind of weird. Let me show a, a clip of it. The way that I can only gauge that this panel has some effect is that when I went to check the torrent trackers after the con, you know, the amount of people and traffic on this thing increased like 50-fold or something like that. So I guess people saw the thing, was like, ooh, that's cool, and then they went out and they got it. And so that's kind of the goal of the panel. So it's actually working. And the other thing is this thing that you're about to review, because I ran that at the panel. And much like how last year I was like, you have to do this sort of shock and awe tactic of show like kind of like the worst thing you've got out the gate. Mm -hmm. And then the people who stay will probably stay (laughs) and the people who leave will leave. And people left. There were a number number of people people that got up. Well, yeah, a lot of people. And here's the fascinating thing. Understandably. No, no, it's it's understandable, but I mean, yeah. it's also, there were people waiting in line for four hours to get into that panel. <laughs> yeah. So I'm just thinking in my head, what if one of these people who was waiting four hours in line, who got in, that left? <laughs> yeah. I, I would hate to, you know, have ruined that person's life, but um, <laughs> and there's I a assume- lot of things about Otakon that happen that way, where... The only way you were going to get in was if you wait in line. But at the same time, there's a lot. And I would say more than 50% of the things that people line up for at Otakon, there is no valid reason to line up for. And no. all it does is just make it miserable for everybody else. That Who you're the hell up. are you people lining up for the dealer's room? Stop doing that. Maybe there if no there was like a reason. limited edition, only sold at that con kind of thing. But there isn't. No, there isn't. Stop it's it. Just, it's just the thing that they know to do. Like, that's that's why they're at the con to, is to line up. Like, there is, like, the one justifiable example, and that's for Yoko Kano. Because her concert wasn't like a conventional concert that you would typically see. She had sort of a projection system. Yeah, she could fill that arena easily. Yeah. But I guess the deal was... She was going to do like a solo piano kind of thing where they were going to project images in a certain way that the effect couldn't reliably be replicated in a large scale venue like the arena. Now, so, now to give you an idea, she wanted originally to do this to 200 people. Yeah, 200 people a, and that's it's it. It's a preview for this tour she's doing in Japan called Piano Me. They said there's going to be 35,000 people here. And if we say Yoko Kano is the guest... 35,000 people are going to want to come in. 
And she is not doing any interviews for press. She was not doing any panels. She was not answering any questions. She was not doing anything. The only appearance she made was at this concert. Well, she did do autograph signings, but that she and did keep autograph. limited to 200. Yeah, again, and 200 so autographs. The but, only uh, way you could get in was to line up days in advance and get a ticket to get access into the concert. And they didn't really advertise this anywhere except like online on their message board because they figured we deliberately don't want the line to be horrible or whatever. So we're going to do whatever. Sure enough, come Friday morning at 6 a.m., you know, earlier than that, people were lined up for that. By the time we woke up, the tickets were gone. And so I was like, how did they even find out? I think it was just on the Oticon message board, and that was it. But yeah, that, they, they went, like, you know, the, the thousand however many tickets went, and I guess eventually they did figure out they were able to negotiate having an overflow room so that a large amount of people could fill up that uh, hall adjacent and watch, mm-hmm. like, a, a rebroadcast of it, but that had its own, like, separate, like, stuff going on there. Right. But that's an example, like, you know, we just, because we were press, we were like, all right, there isn't enough press seating to get into this thing so they said we're going to have everybody write the name of their organization down and then we'll draw randomly to see who gets in and so i wrote i was with otaku usa and gerald wrote that he was with this podcast which is true we weren't lying Mm -hmm. and we both ended up getting tickets to go and so we by virtue of you know the press tickets we did not have to wait three days in line effectively because again getting into it was its own ordeal and a half took forever just to get in there i mean we couldn't have we had panels to do we yeah, had, I had interviews to do interviews i had panels to, to put it's, on this is the only way we could have seen it and from a press perspective it was kind of useless to us because we can't take pictures can't do anything basically you know she played well and people liked it that's yeah that's, that's all we can you know, really that's, say that's, like that's you can say we can't take photographs of it no recordings no anything but we were able to get in and we couldn't have gotten in without this and because they were able to let us skip the line and also get tickets. And so we were able to just kind of like, I didn't intend on going to the concert the whole weekend. And then Sunday, you know, we get a phone call or an email or whatever saying, guess what you're going. So we're like, well, shit, I guess we're going. Cause I famously was saying leading up to this, you can either go to this Yoko Kano concert or you can see the rest of the convention. And that's for some people that was their weekend. That was their whole Oticon was just the means of getting a ticket to that concert and then getting into that concert. And that whole process, that took, you know, two-thirds of their time. Yeah. And, uh, you know, just puts things into perspective. Like, of course, people, like, that's a memory that those people especially will keep with them forever. But for us, it's like, you know, we're almost Philistines. You know, we showed up, we got front row seats to it, and I'm like, this is awesome, but what can I say about it? I mean, they weren't, like, the best seats. They shouldn't be the best seats because, you know, there's actual people who work very hard for those seats. They were just, you know, off to the side sort of, press seats. I would say these seats were incredibly good. We were directly pretty much in the front row, like maybe second row from the front, off to the right from the stage, but there was a projector screen right in front of us. And if you think about it, all that the people who went into the overflow rooms got to see was what was projected onto that screen. So I would say the seats were exceptionally good (laughs) considering um, how much of ingrates we are for them. But yeah, uh, that's you know, what else is there to say? I mean, Yoko Kano is like the anime soundtrack person, you know, like the crazy mad genius who lives up to that persona because like she didn't really talk uh, the whole time. She kind of just Marcel Marceau'd it. She just bounced out with some, put on some, some bunny, bunny ears. ears. That's right. 
and uh, started playing, and it was beautiful. It it was weird because, I mean, she's a pianist by trade, but most of her music that people hear is not necessarily the piano music. It's the orchestrated versions of them. So when she so. plays that song on piano... I was like, shit, I have no idea what this song is, but I should yeah. know what it is because it sounds familiar. And then when they released the set list afterwards, I'm like, oh, okay, it's a song from Escaflone, but it wasn't a song from Escaflone. It was played on piano. Right. And so on and so forth. I, I will say this, though, because of our seating, we were able to notice she didn't have any notes whatsoever. She played the entire concert from memory. The piano was like this tricked out super ultra piano, like a typical piano would have like three pedals. This thing had like eight pedals on it and no one else could see this except from like where we were sitting. It was, and she also did the, the concert barefoot. Oh yeah. Kicked off her shoes and yeah, just did it clearly as casually as she could. It was neat. I'll, I'll give it that. I, I, not really like a conventional concert and the person who opened for her could have been her own concert on her own normally. Cause it was Chiaki Ishikawa and she's like the vocalist for like name a Yuki Kaiger, a song. That's her. She's yeah. got that weird voice that you think is put through like a filter, but no, that's just her singing voice. So came out, came out wearing the steampunk hat and everything. Yeah. Which, which I got photos of. So, and, and people in the overflow room weren't allowed to see her. Like, I guess the way that the rights were set up, they could only see the video that was played alongside her as like the karaoke background. So people in the overflow were pissed because they were like, are we not going to see Yoko Kano either? And I understand that they had to like repeatedly calm that crowd to say, look, it's just by request of the music company or whatever. Right. But yeah, so, I mean, not that much was they can definitely do. cool. Yeah. It's almost cruel, like how we're talking about this, because people came out of that who were like, oh my God, my life has changed. This is the most amazing thing. And we were just, yeah, it was good. But yeah, I'm trying to contextualize why that is. It's just yeah, because, I know. It's, you know, yeah. we did other things at the con. We had to do other things at the con. Right. For some people, if you wanted to see TM Revolution, it maybe wasn't as bad because you could just walk into the arena. Right. But for this... How many other cons is Yoko Kano going to be doing a concert at? She was maybe at one con like years ago. Yeah, she was yeah, at I mean, Otakon. Like you know that I was most upset about missing. I would have been upset about missing it too because like I was just resolved that I wasn't going to be able to get in. Mm. I was going to be like, and it would have been horrible because Clarissa, you and I would have gone there as Anime World Order. They, and if they, they picked, picked only us, one person from the organization could go. Yeah, so you would have had to kill Gerald. Yeah, we would have had to, like, fight it out or something. I'm all right so. with that. <laughs> well, you know, the, the real, you know, someone has to kill Gerald story, I guess we probably have to save for the awesome cast tomorrow when we record that. <laughs> because the main person with the motive to kill you is not here right now to actually relay this story. I mean, at first I thought it would have been me, but really when I think about it, no, I'm second in line. Yeah. <laughs> for this one and that is a long line of people that want to kill me apparently. yeah but i mean you know apparently otakon is there too they rejected all of my panels this year maybe i need to get on on, on their good side and their not kill list or something to get panels accepted again well maybe <laughs> what you can do is say that you can do a better panel on asperger's syndrome than the guy <laughs> who did the asperger's panel because well, <laughs> that was the only bad panel I went to because you could do a good panel on that topic, but maybe you probably should not have your sole credentials be I myself have Asperger's because then you will get a panel as put on by someone who has Asperger's and is just basically telling their life story who can't read the social cues of the audience that 
we're not interested in your autobiography. It took him like 35 minutes just to mention anime. That was the only bad panel I went to. I also don't have Asperger's, so I probably shouldn't do a panel. People accused me of having Asperger's. I don't see it. Yeah, I I could not do a panel like that. I'll try again next year, maybe, if I can go. That is Otakon, uh, unless we have any, like, last things to mention. I Um, feel like I was doing so many things and I missed 95% of the con. But it's not like I was doing nothing, like hanging out in my room or not going to events or anything. It's more just like I was in the dealer's room for like 10 minutes total. I was in Artist Alley for like a few minutes total. I was in the video game room that one time and the pachinko machines weren't on and then I never went back in, you know, and so on and so forth. I think part of it is just Street Pass. This was Street Pass Con, like the 3DS um, <laughs> has a feature that I'd never used before that is called Street Pass, where you just leave it in sleep mode, and if other people have the 3DSs on, you'll get, you know, their tags and, you know, do little games to unlock things, and some of these things can only be done through this method. I hadn't updated my 3DS, and so I wasn't able to do all the games or what have you, and I also didn't understand, like, the way it worked. Once you get 10 people... You have to clear all, all 10 and then you have to play all these, these two or however many mini games with that. But there are so many people at Otakon and so many people with 3DSs that by the time you do this, you've got another 10. And so you never have any downtime at this convention because how many panels and things were we at where it's like, well, we're finally here at the panel and now we have to concurrently clear out our street pass. <laughs> but now everybody in the panel room is doing this too. And so now we have another 10. I love how we talk about this like this was as important at the, as the interviews we it were is. doing. But, this but, is uh, like I the most vitally important thing. <laughs> I remember sitting down at one at I think the, the Charles Dunbar panel you did, and I think I went through seven or eight sets of people before it stopped filling up. We were on stage going through them. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and maybe I maybe I should do a panel like that. Do a panel called Street Pass. The street pass panel. It wouldn't and just work because that's the whole rest of the con. We would just walk from like one room to our room and it would have filled <laughs> up already. I mean, that's just, uh, I guess the Vita doesn't have a corresponding equivalent. I will say this. Everybody at Otakon was playing Animal Crossing New Leaf. Nobody was playing Project, Project, Project Cross, Cross Zone. Zone. Barely any. And then when I went to AFO the next week, like there were more people playing Project Cross Zone at AFO than all of Otakon. Uh, mm. Animal Crossing was just out of hand. There are other games, people. Yeah, like Project Cross Zone. A few so. people were playing Shin Megami Tensei 4. Mm-hmm. And a few people were playing Fire Emblem Awakening. But A lot of people really had a good time playing system settings. System settings, that's right. You know, that's uh, like, thanks, like system settings. Thanks, settings. 3DS, for saying this is what I was doing lately. Looking my activity log. What they really should do is be like, this is what you were doing, and this was the last website you visited. <laughs> right i keep forgetting it has a web built into it but they should just do that because that would just incriminate everybody but yeah i mean i think that that ties into why it feels like we weren't doing things because time that may have been spent doing something else was time clearing out the street pass <laughs> well admittedly we never just sat down in a hallway and did it we were at a panel we were always doing something else that's yes. right so it was never just you know street pass whatever that would have been terrible Good con, it, congestion issues need to be addressed, or I guess they are addressing them in some way, and I guess they're addressing them by moving the convention. But that is not for another four years or three years, so not even an issue 
next year or the year after. It is Washington, D.C., and nothing in Washington, D.C. is cheap. No. Yeah, no. I'm really concerned about that because I, I went there once for Katsukon, and I'm pretty sure Otakon being the size that it is, there's only so many places that it can be. There's a good chance that it might be in a similar location to where Katsukon was held. And there was like no food nearby, period. And it was very costly just to get to anywhere. And so I am wondering about that as well, but that's not for another three years. One thing we did do is we found great places to eat close by that were never crowded. We that, never uh, at any point ate at the Jimmy John's or the California Tortilla ever. Yep. And then the California Tortilla Twitter account responded to me to say, oh, well, we missed you. <laughs> Which means that there's somebody whose job it is, one, that there needs to be a California Tortilla social media account, and two, somebody whose job it is to monitor the internet to see, did anybody mention California Tortilla? Your company and then sucks respond at social media. Oh, uh, yeah. Anyway, good job, Otakon. Thank you for having us as press. It was great. Have us as press next year. Hopefully I can get some panels in next year. We'll see. Maybe I won't submit panels that so controversial, because I did get to do that panel the, the week later at AFO. Went pretty well, and it will be done at AWA. So anyone going to AWA, look forward to the uh, worst business decisions in anime. And for those curious of how the panels went that I did at Otakon, you can actually go to the website, AnimeWorldOrder.com, and there should be a post. It'll be like the second most recent one after this episode. There'll be this title shown. At Otakon, and it'll be like everything I showed in anime under 15 minutes, everything I showed at Craziest Deaths. That'll be like the list of, you know, what I did there because there's no like uh, Wi-Fi in the center. There's no like recordings I have of this stuff. This is pretty much like the list of what I got. So if you're curious, uh, that's basically what went down. I guess that is it for Otakon, and uh, I guess we should get on with this review. All right, so at Otakon, like I mentioned at the opening segment, one of the things I opened with at Anime's Craziest Deaths, I started with like something that was popular that everybody knew about, which was Psychopaths, and then I immediately went to the thing that I was banking. Nobody knew what the hell this thing was. Now, to be fair, I because I read Anna pages, I knew about this. I just didn't know it was available to watch because up until very recently was a very hard thing to come by. Right. We'll get into that. I mean, uh, yeah. Anna Pages, incidentally, finally unearthed himself and came back to life, you know, a day or two ago. It's been over a year now since uh, the woman called Fujiko Mine destroyed him so much and he hated it so much that he was like, I'm quitting the Internet forever or what have you. Or he just vanished without a trace and he just assumed it was that, which is weird because I like that show. But I guess, you know, from an animator's perspective, he did not approve. He only just came back. Yeah. Ben Ettinger. Ben Ettinger. Poss possibly the smartest guy on the internet with anime, possibly, just because he is the guy who can look at a scene in anime and be like, that guy animated it. Yeah, he can, uh, he can get the, the resources, the, uh, the books in Japanese and such that describe what key animators worked on what scenes, and then he can, uh, get that information in the English. But he also has the eye that he can just see certain people's, you know, trademark flourishes and say, right. oh, this must have been made by so and so. Right. I can do that not a little easy. bit, but not nearly to the extent that he can. Maybe some people now can do that for Yoshinori Kanada, 
but yeah, that, that may be one of the only guys. Right. But anyway, this work in particular, I think it's fair to say, and it's realistic to say, that anime is, by and large, a commercial product. It's not inaccurate to say. We love it. We know we love it enough to do this podcast, but it's also fair to say that most anime out there, the vast, vast majority of it is made with its commercial possibility as its first thought. And, you know, whatever artistic qualities it has as its second thought, or at the very least, the artistic side of it, the decisions are made there to fuel the commercial side. I mean, for example, you know, they get, you know, a particular designer to design the girls in Queen's Blade. Because they know if they design them a certain way, more people will buy, you know, the books, mm-hmm. things like that. This is not mind-blowing. Right, this goes back decades to, you know, the production committees. If one's a toy company and they say, hey, let's design this show to make it more conducive to selling our toys. Right. They know exactly, like, how to design the male characters so, you know, girls will be attracted to the show. This has constantly been going on all the time. And there's nothing wrong with this. And it doesn't undermine, you know, anime, that there are commercial works. However, it is important to separate the commercial works that are done by those that are an artistic endeavor and are made with an artistic intent. Like, there are works like Clarissa and I, we went to see this movie called Tamala 2010. Terrible movie, by the way. Terrible movie. You can say, you know, it succeeded or it failed doing what it tried to do, but that is not a commercial product. It was not made to, you know sell a lot of commercial items yeah, they're not that was like made selling as an like cute tamala dolls at you know every single right. store or at least that wasn't the intent it that was made as an artistic statement it's kind of awful but you have to judge it differently now this work is most definitely a work done for art's sake it's one of the very very few done in anime and that is as we talked about it's the 52 minute movie called midori chojo tsubaki the English title is Mr. Arashi's Amazing Freak Show. And it's based on a 1984 manga by probably the most famous, or at the very least, the most well-respected Eroguro artist out there working today. And his name is uh, Suihiro Maruo. Now, you have to go back and define what that is. Eroguro, or, you know, is short for the, the erotic grotesque. At its core is kind of the idea of, let's sort of combine erotica and horror together like i think the most mainstream example of the concept that isn't necessarily an example of that but it sort of conveys the idea would be like you know a hugely popular show is high school of the dead and so one of the like early scenes is like you get to see a girl being devoured alive by zombies but you also see your titties hanging out so it's supposed to be like fan servicey and hot but it's super sick because you know it's a dead body you know a mutilated corpse that's sort of the concept that sort of drives Aragura overall. In a, we- in a way, and I can't deny that, because one of the most, I don't know if he's the most popular, just the most infamous is a guy named Waita Uziga. Uh, Clarissa, you've sat through his work. His thing is just, you know, absolute just gore. I was about to say, like, isn't there a difference, though, between the kind of Guro stuff that Waita Uziga does and, like, the type of Eroguro stuff that Maruo is doing? Let's go into I think they're the same thing. The thing is, they they probably would fall under the same shelf at a bookstore, let's say. But in my opinion, they are very much worlds apart. Suihiro Maro has been published in America for a long time. Uh, this this manga he published was done in 1984. Amazingly, he's probably one of the longest published manga authors in English. In fact, this manga, the manga that this was based off of, Mr. Arashi's Amazing Freak Show, was published. 
in the U.S. in English in 1992. How much manga was published in 1992? Not much. As Clarissa, as you were saying, Maro's stuff is different. Like, his stuff is definitely falls under the kind of Erogudo thing, but it is generally not nearly as sexual as a lot of other work is. It's far more weird. He's very much into, like, body horror, things like that. You can actually see a lot of Maro's work in America, besides Mr. Arashi's Freak Show. Um, he Is that the name that it was released as in the yes. English edition? Mr. Arashi's Amazing Freak Show was was the name of it. You can still find that. And you can he's uh, published other work like The Strange Tale of Panorama Island, um, Ultra Gash Inferno. Uh, there was an anthology that was released a couple of years ago called AX, letter A, letter X, which uh, was an anthology dedicated to kind of alternative manga. And he was featured in there quite a lot. And Mr. Arashi's Amazing Freak Show, or as I will call it from now on, Midori, because that is the actual name of it is Midori, is uh, one of the earlier ones that he worked on. And uh, this is a show about a young girl named Midori. And from what I understand, she's living in kind of the early Showa era, which is the 1920s, 1930s. In the anime, the year 1880 is mentioned. I'm pretty sure that's wrong, because there is a guy that shows up in the anime who is trying to make a film. And there weren't many films being done in 1880. So I'm pretty sure that this is set very, very early in part of the 20th century. Uh, anyway, the show opens with Midori trying to make a living by selling flowers on the street. She's trying to do this because her mother is sick and her father just disappeared. Just ran away or something. A strange man takes pity on her and gives her an address to go to just in case, you know, she runs out of options. Which, in the very next scene, basically, she does. Because Midori is taking care of her mother, and her mother is you now like laying down in this mat, and she's not responding to her. And Midori is going, you know, what what's going on, mom? Pulls off the covers, and she finds that her mother is being eaten by rats. She's long since died. Like she's possibly that's <laughs> even I think suggested that she might have been taking care of her mother for a couple of days while she was being eaten by rats. And because, you know, the kind of work this is, this is the sort of thing where they're sure to show you that the rats are feasting on vagina. That shot is there, but the rats are mostly just eating her legs. <laughs> mostly. Mostly. This puts Midori completely out of options, and so she checks out this address, and she finds out that it is a freak show, a kind of a circus. Either her option is to join this freak show circus or live on the street. Both incredibly horrible options. Now, Maro has always really liked, you know, showing off deformed sort of humans. This work is, you know, very typical of the cast that he likes. It's, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Freaks. Kind of like that. Like, there's a guy who swallows swords. There's a, a man with this terribly long sort of twisted neck that sort of curls backwards that he can't kind of keep up straight. There's a burn victim who has no arms. There's a man who's got no arms and legs, and there's a there's like a transsexual fire breather. Yeah, a lot of people, when they saw the art, they asked me if it was Kazuo Umetsu, because he also sort of deals yeah. in sort of weird body horror sort of imagery. You know, we reviewed Uzumaki in a previous episode, if you want exactly. to hear more about that. Yeah, very similar, but just certainly less sexual in his work. Of course, if you've ever read any Victorian literature, you know that no story about orphans is ever pleasant or happy. And so Midori now finds that she has to perform in these shows and do some pretty awful things. In fact, the very first panel in the manga, and one of the very first things that you ever see in the anime, is Midori biting the eye out of a chicken so that it squirts blood all over her. Yeah, it's the uh, the geek 
in the original classical sense of the circus sideshow. But I mean, I think horrible is sort of like understating what's going on here because the instant that she shows up in the front door, they rape her immediately. To be fair, it always cuts away. Cuts away and then cuts back and then, you know, like it actually there was a scene in the manga that was like maybe three or four panels and in the anime it just faded to black and that was it. Like it was suggested that she was raped and that was it. Is nothing if not shocking at times. Like the director, a man named Hiroshi Harada, very faithfully adapts the manga. You know, he uh, omits little bits and pieces here and there and he fleshes out other pieces here and there. However, some of the most shocking scenes are still kept in and still in graphic detail. Like, for I example... Say, oh, well, go ahead. I mean, I was just going to point out, like, you know, everyone sort of knows the name Makoto Shinkai, the guy who did Voices of a Distant Star, which we've reviewed yeah. in the past, and how that was like this this landmark breakthrough that this guy kind of made this whole thing himself. And we haven't actually really mentioned this just yet, but Harada is kind of beating Makoto Shinkai at his own game. Right, and I'll I'll get to that in just a bit. Like, the, the stuff that this guy goes into animating is horrific. Like, the very first chapter of this, people have seen this gif all over the place, but it's just a scene of, like, this one girl, just, uh, I should say, the transsexual, so I don't know really what to call her, just proving how horrible a person she is by killing these puppies. Doesn't just, like, smack them in the head or something. No, stomps on them in the most graphic detail you can possibly imagine then they cook the puppies and feed them to midori well they feed them to everybody because there's no meat at this time in japan that was the only meat they could get but tremendously graphic if you are a dog lover do not watch this i'm actually going to put that image as the embedded mp3 image for this so that I, no i'll i'll find something else but <laughs> no, i was really <laughs> thinking about it it is horrific to watch midori is definitely Unique, and then we throw around the word unique, but this this is friggin' unique, and it is unique in almost every single way, from its content to its subject matter to how it was made. Hiroshi Harada was very disillusioned with the anime industry. He started in the industry in the 70s, like, I think late 70s. He was working on television anime and is still working today. He actually worked on, like, folktales of Japan, he's worked on Kirby and Ikitosen, but he got very disillusioned with the industry and said, you know, I'm just going to make independent anime. I'm going to make anime as an artistic expression. And so he started making these shorts. And this was, I think this was maybe the fourth short he made. He, you know, tried very hard to get Maro's work. And he did. The work was so strange and so bizarre that nobody wanted to finance it. And so he just went out of his way and he put his own money and time in it. And he, for the next five years, he animated the entire 52 minute thing by himself. So this would have been in the 80s, like before there was computers and digital animation techniques and all that kind of stuff. This was released in 1992. And so, yeah, he was working on it in the late 80s. And it sounded fascinating that he felt disillusioned by the anime industry at a time where people sort of look back at it as saying, like, that's when anime was allowed to be like the most artistic. I mean, this was the era of anime that gave us angel's egg well remember he started in the 70s which was a very cookie cutter horrible time yeah he was uh, just 
really pissed off with it enough that uh, you know he his time and effort into making this an extraordinary labor of love. Uh, there's actually an interview with him where he just has you know the cells piled up in front of him. And he made the whole thing himself, pretty much in isolation, and you know lost his mind, you know, on that because that's its own psychosis. <laughs> working on this on your own. The finishing for the movie was done professionally. Like he took the cells out and they were professionally photographed and everything. So he didn't do that himself. He just Every single thing that you see drawn, he drew himself. But the work itself, Midori, is possibly one of the most painful and twisted things you will watch. But at its core, it's something that I kind of have a weird sort of admiration for. The work itself has to stand on its own. Like, you can't take the sort of history on how it was made, let that influence, you know, how you judge the work by itself. So, to be fair, the artwork in this is really quite beautiful. The backgrounds are gorgeous, the colors are vibrant. There is not a ton of movement in it, but when there is movement there, it's well animated. There's surprisingly, well, not surprisingly since it's one guy, but there is very little movement in this. It's almost like, sort of like some of those old Magical Lantern kind of things at times, like just the way that you don't really see a whole lot of you know, speech or what have you. There's a lot of like frozen things. Plus there are portions of the freak show that basically are like, you know, he must've seen Belladonna and was like, not weird enough. Right. I gotta, gotta up this a bit. And so, you know, there's some just absolutely ridiculous, like shots of people People getting twisted and twisted up and bursting into, you know, viscera and what have you. Mm hmm. But strangely enough, I wasn't actually bothered by it because what was animated and what was drawn was very beautifully done. And when you think of other works that have come out that had like enormous teams of people working on them that don't necessarily look as good, like, I mean, what was that Monkey Punch show that... uh, um, Gundo Musashi. Yeah, Gundo Musashi. I mean, that was, you know, a studio of people and that show looked like crap. There's probably almost less animation in that than there was in in this thing. I don't want to, you know, pretend that this is, you know, fully animated beginning to end. This is almost the definition of limited animation. But he did get, you know, other outside people to work on on parts of it. Like the music, for example, was done by a guy named J.A. Caesar. Yeah, whom uh, people should probably be able to recognize what else he's done. Oh, yeah. Probably the most famous for uh, Revolutionary Girl Utena. He did a lot of the, the fighting music, the dueling music to mm-hmm. it which uh, a lot of people remember that music as, you know, especially great. So he is uh, he did all of the music for this. He's apparently like a famous like 60s musician who did like and has done like some performance art and some avant-garde stuff. Um, I'm probably using the term avant-garde incorrectly, so whatever. Now, it, it comes down to this. Would I recommend this movie? If this were a very commercial piece of anime, it would be very easy to say, maybe you want to skip this. But... This was done as an artistic statement. In order, what do you believe very, the statement is? I think I'm still trying to figure that out. I think it's basically it's, at its core an anti-bullying sort of parable. But that's what he mentioned in his interview. But it seems to me like because so I, I haven't read the source material of it, but right, I did. Looking it's, as as somebody who just saw the movie without really having the context of it until after I saw the movie. It just seemed like a whole bunch of horrible things happen and nobody gets their comeuppance for it. It's just like 
this girl gets tormented and tortured and abused physically and emotionally and physically some more. And, um, you know, nothing really bad happens to the, the people who deserve to have the bad things happen to them. I disagree completely. I mean, uh, the, uh, certainly in the original work, more people die. But, you know, there's people that died in the anime as well that, you know, were mistreating her very badly. Yeah, that that's certainly true. I don't, I disagree there that there's no, like, come up. And I don't think it's as bad as, like, Blood Sea, which is just infuriating. I just feel like it's like watching the first half of I Spit on Your Grave. Watching all of I Spit on Your Grave doesn't really make up for that. <laughs> Even if you don't really think that it's something for you, I'm glad that anime is trying to, you know, stretch itself. It doesn't oftentimes do that. It's uh, become easier to do that, but the people that will go out and do that are few and far between. And Midori is such a weird work and such a twisted and strange work. When I showed it at the panel, I was like, I, I just sort of said my whole game with it was saying like, this is terrible and you shouldn't watch it because it's horrible and bad, but I'm going to show it to you anyway with the unstated motive being that you're going to go track this down and see it. You know, like that's the kind of thing that it is like you can't like recommend it blanket straight up because people are going to watch it and be like, why did you make me watch that? Right. So, this, is, this is why I'm trying to, you know, m emphasize that this is not something that you watch. It's visibly it's, repugnant it's, and it's, it's it moral is. is terrible, but see it. You know, like that, that's the kind of game but, that I was playing by is, showing it to people. But it's, that's the thing is that it's art. It's not necessarily meant to be comfortable. Art is not necessarily meant to be something that makes you feel good. Art is sometimes meant to make you feel awful. And this does that. This is about the point of the conversation where Patrick Macias is going to reach into the MP3 player and <laughs> strangle me. He's like, stop talking about it. it's anime art, man. But, you know, I, I get where you're coming from, because this is not like a, any other. No, this is there's motive. very, very, very little stuff I would throw the word like art and anime at at the same time. This is one of those very few things like up until very recently. Uh, you couldn't get hold of this very easily. There like, was no was, commercial release. Like, you couldn't no. buy it on video. You actually had to go to an art show that Hiroshi Harada would put on, and he had this sort of very elaborate way of, like, showing this. And that was the only, only way you could see this. Like, it he was, set it up to be like you were at a carnival freak show. Right. Seeing, like, weird sights and what have you, and I guess it would probably culminate with, like, a showing of this thing, and there would be, like, I don't know, smoke gimmicks and, I don't know, whatever other outlandish stuff. Right. You would go into, like, this weird maze, and then at the end of this maze, you would be in, like, this theater, and you would watch this movie. That, up until very recently, was the only way you could see it. That and a couple of um, film festivals in America showed it, but then it got a release in Europe on DVD. And that is how a lot of other people have managed to see it. Apparently, it can never be released in Japan because it had to be heavily, heavily censored. And it would have to be censored. It would I have think. to be. I actually don't know if I watched the censored or uncensored. I don't version. think there's such a thing as like the censored cut. Like I think his whole motive of why he didn't want to commercially release it through the normal method would be that they would have to edit and change the thing so much that it wouldn't be his project anymore. And that was why he was like, I'm going to eschew all that and I'm going to show this on my own terms or what have you, such that the release in Europe, I'm sure it must have been contingent on him saying, you release it exactly as is, or else I'm not even going to give you the rights to it. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that anything that you will see of this commercially is probably that cut of it which is strange considering the stuff that i have seen from japan and wasn't censored like daryl has been saying this is 
a repugnant, uncomfortable, horrific work to watch. Saying that, everybody listening to this will want to watch this. Well, that's just it. That's that's why I always that's yeah. my motive. It's like the more you tell people don't do something, they'll be like, yeah. "Oh yeah, I'll <laughs> show you." But I know that you think that, so I'm going to do this anyway. So now, all of you people who are going to watch this now, now that I've given you fair warning, remember you, what you, I said. You can't you, now comment on us and say, how dare you make me watch this thing. Yes, I told you what to be prepared for. What I did when I put the notes up for Otakon, you can't just say the name Midori and leave it at that, because Midori means like green or something like that yes. in Japanese. So I said... If you search for Midori and then also tack on either the creator's name, Hiroshi Harada, you'll find it. If you right. type the full name, like Midori Shoujo Tsubaki, you'll find it. Even mm-hmm. Mr. Arashi's Freak Show, you'll find it too. Right. So. But you know, I didn't direct link to it. I was like, to give me like the plausible deniability of like, there's not even like a, I clicked an errant link. It's like, nope, you're going to have to go and... Type this on your own accord into the search engine of your choice. Yeah. That way you yourself sought this out and went out of your way to see this thing as opposed to like, oh, I pranked you guys by throwing in like a terrifying photograph inside something where you weren't expecting it or what have you. And if you've ever read any of Suahiro Maro's work before, this will just be sort of par for the course. Actually, it's probably less gory than his work is normally. It's probably easier to, to stomach from that perspective. But yes, Midori Chojo Tsubaki, consume at your own risk. Don't watch this, but, but go and watch this. <laughs> okay, that does it for this episode of Anime World Order, episode 118. Thank you very much for listening. Check out our website at www.animeworldorder.com. Come email us at animeworldorder at gmail.com. You're more likely than ever now to get your email read. And please consider checking out the uh, Skin Crawling Comics Indiegogo. We'll put a link up in the show notes. Uh, we are trying to get that funded. So if you can, please uh, check that out and donate to it if you are feeling generous. Anyway, that's it for this episode of Anime World Order. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you next time.